Welcome everyone to another episode of Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host, Mike Hooper, and with me is a very special guest, Professor Tara Brookfield, who is the author of Our Voices Must Be Heard, a book on the history of the fight for women's rights in Canada. She's also the author of a book that touches on the issue of children's rights and the activist women taking care of them in the World Wars and the Cold War on the Canadian side called Cold War Comforts, Canadian Women, Child Safety, and Global Insecurity. She is the Associate Professor for the Faculty of History and Faculty of Children and Youth Studies at the University of Wilfrid Laurier in Ontario, and a receiver of numerous prestigious awards, among them the Governor General's Academic Gold Medal. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for including me. So I'd like to start by reading a paragraph from your book on page 91, Our Voices Must Be Heard, about how New Zealand gave the vote. Quote, Developments elsewhere in the British Empire and the United States suggested that further change was possible. In 1893, New Zealand passed a landmark act that gave women the parliamentary vote, regardless of their marital status and ethnicity. This victory, the product of a coalition between suffragists and the WCTU members, had been prompted in part by a petition that contained more than 61,000 signatures. Ten weeks after the, this legislative change, both white and Maori women headed to the polls, though none could stand as candidates until 1919. Nine years later, Australia became the second nation state to enfranchise women." End quote. So this happened in other Commonwealth countries, but it took Canada so much longer. And you go on to write in your book, quote, seven women defy tradition in 1844 by casting their ballots in West Halton, end quote, in Ontario. So would you mind telling us more about that? What led up to this achievement and what was the consequences of this action? Were other women after these seven able to vote? That's really interesting. When I started my research for the project, I just read in a book, Seven Women Voted in this 1844 election. And my book's focus was on Ontario and the previous colonies before Ontario in this region. And I knew women in Quebec had been able to vote because Ontario and Quebec had different property laws. Quebec had a little bit more generous property laws allowing women um, a bit more control over their cash or goods. And in Ontario, only um, single women had the right to own property. If you were married, everything you owned became your husband's. And property was the main condition for voting. So while there were no laws in 1844 saying women couldn't vote, you needed to own a certain amount of property. And so it was very rare for women to accumulate enough money to, to purchase property if they were single. Um, let's say sort of a, a young woman or maybe a widow or a spinster it would have been the language they would use for a, a woman of marriageable age who wasn't married. Um, but there would have been women probably in every part of the colony at the time. This would have been known as Canada West who had enough money, but they weren't using that right. And I'm not quite sure if it was they were actively discouraged or they just didn't think it was their place. Or maybe they weren't educated to know that a woman could vote, um, even if they had accumulated enough property. So for the few women who did qualify, we didn't see this happening until 1844 when these seven women showed up to vote, cast their vote for the Conservative candidate at the time. And the Conservative won the election. And then his opponent, who was from the Reform Party, was very upset because he said it was 
not right for women to be voting. They couldn't vote. Could they investigate to see what had happened? And he was also concerned that men outside of the county had come in. And, and if the, all that was um, wrong, then he would have won the election. So they had this big investigation. And it was through that investigation that I found out a little bit more about the attitudes at the time, the names of the women who had been accused of voting. Um, and I should say at the time, voting would have been a public act. You wasn't private. You would go up to what was known as the hustings, a public space dedicated to voting, which could have been outside or in a bar, a tavern or a church. And you would have had to say out, voice out loud who you were voting for. And both candidates were often present or their friends were present. Wow. And so it was... Um, for women to have done that in, in this case, it would have been quite uh, an act for them to have broken with tradition. So, wow, that, that, that's very interesting. So do we know anything more about these women? So you're saying they're conservative. Is that correct? Yeah. So party politics at the time weren't as ingrained as they were now. Parties were shifting and it was still re relatively new, but there was definitely allegiances. And this would, they were this is the party that would be the the origins of today's sort of modern uh, pro progressive conservative party. And so, d why did all seven vote for one party? Some people theorize that maybe it was the men in their families who were nervous about the Reform Party, which was the party that, just by their name, were looking to change things. That those who were in the Conservatives were more of the status quo. They had a lot of power. And so, did some people say, hey, you know, if you own property? come and vote and help our party be better because we don't want these more radical reformers coming in. So one previous historian thought the women must have been coerced to vote for from male conservative supporters. Um, but it, it was a very widespread region in the county it was called Halton County, which would be today in Ontario where Burlington and Guelph and Waterloo would have been. And so the women from I know from that I was able to identify with their addresses, they were very spread out. So I don't even know if they knew each other. I did find out they were all widows and maybe as women with no men, they were interested in the futures of protecting their properties, which they had inherited from their husbands after their deaths. And so maybe they felt the conservative party would represent their wishes better. And the other big issue with that election was roads and canals. And so they were farmers. And so being able to have tr means of transportation to get their goods to market maybe was, was of interest to them. Um, I was able to find a little bit more about three of the women just by, I searched all of them using genealogical records, birth records, marriage records, immigration records. Some of them I couldn't find any records of. Um, some of them I couldn't be sure it was the same woman because they had a very common name. But I was able to find three of the women who lived in the Guelph area of this um, region. They were all widows. Two of them were older women in their 70s. And the one that I, I was able to get quite excited about, her name was... Um, Hannah Williams, and she was Laura Secord's youngest daughter. And so Laura Secord is a sort of a famous name within sort of Canadian history, known for her activities in the War of 1812. And her daughter was a widow in her late 20s, which distinguishes her from the other women in her late 70s. She had two young children. And at the time of the election, she was actually living in the Niagara Falls region with her mother, um, who she had gone to after her husband's death. So I wonder what maybe inspired her to vote? Was it perhaps a family history of women being strong citizens and active in um, representing their, their family's interests and following their convictions? Or was she, might, might, like the others, just interested in conversations about women's voting rights that had been happening across the British Empire? Or did she know about women in Quebec voting? So I, I really wonder 
um, about sort of their characters and their personalities because they were really defying tradition and clearly their act was controversial because of the contested election. And um, it was found out, all the evidence was lost from the investigation so they couldn't rule um, in favor for or against the candidate who had brought it up. But when his party won the next election, they did vote for women to be specifically barred from voting. So for, for the first time in 1849, they said women could not vote specifically. They've now had a gender-based qualification. So I don't know if that one candidate was so angry about his situation that he went back and tried to um, explicitly change it. No, that's quite quite interesting. So this woman, this very young woman, the 20-year-old widow, you say that she inherited property from her late husband and that is the reason that she was able to vote in the end? Right. So the when um, the laws, the British common law at the time, you would most likely have put your inheritance to male kin. So it could have gone to, if she had had a son, it would have gone to her son or if he had had brothers or, or, or distant cousins. But a widow would have been guaranteed a small sliver of the estate by law. Um, in this case, it seems that the, the property went entirely to her. But there would be no guarantee. Um, men at the time would have been the ones seen as entirely responsible for household and financial affairs. And they were the ones who had banking privileges and, and uh, economic sort of responsibilities. And so she might have, depending on the relationship, um, he could have given it, let's say, to a distant cousin if he preferred. And that would have been his legal right. Would the widow's father have any kind of rights over this property? No, um, it would have been still once she once a woman would have left her her family, her her birth family, um, she would have been under the responsibility of sort of her new husband. So there would have been no way um, a father could suddenly interfere to say that that would go to him because they're not blood relatives. The most sort of kinship ties would have gone through the marital line and. A husband has no sort of connection to his wife's father. Okay, so it could have gone to distant cousins on the husband's side. Or... Correct, yes. Okay. Or his brothers or his nephews or... Wow. Um, it, that, that would have been sort of the, the tradition at the time. So it was very rare for women to, uh, to have property, uh, even if their husband had died serving in a war. Correct. There was no guarantee that there was a small percentage that should go to help the wife be able to live, but that didn't mean land or house. It could have been a small amount of cash, for example. And again, when we're talking about inheritance, we're really only talking about people who had were landowners, which was a small percentage of the population in comparison, people who were wealthy enough to own, own land. So um, most working women, poor women, um, women who would be maybe new to Canada and establishing themselves, this would not have been, even been a point for them, um, given like the economics of the time. Right. So if the property would go to uh, a distant cousin or a brother of the late husband, uh, usually it's in families that have more wealth. And perhaps this woman, if she would have children, would gain more support from perhaps her birth family or even uh, the family of her late husband? In, if we could imagine in the best circumstances, people would look out for the widow. Maybe she would return to live with her birth family or maybe her in-laws would take care of her. 
but a lot of times those are no guarantees, especially if this is a period of immigration and maybe people's birth families are back in other countries, mm -hmm. um, for example. Um, it was very common for widows to remarry and Hannah Williams did remarry herself. The other widows in this case were in their 70s and I, and I don't, uh, I don't, I wasn't able to find any proof that they remarried, but for young women with children, seeking financial security would have been, uh, marriage would have been the way to do that. As if we, if we want to set the scene a little bit further, there had been very few ways for women to earn income on themselves and support themselves at the time. Women could, single women could teach, uh, but their salaries were very small. The assumption was if you were teaching and working, you didn't have a family, so they weren't earning the same amount of money that a man would with the expectation that he was supporting a family. You could take in sewing and laundry, maybe work in a tavern or a market, um, be a sex worker, but there was very few um, well-supporting jobs open for women at the time. You've got it, sweet cakes. No more talking, singing, zip. But without my voice, how can I... You'll have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the importance of a body language. Ha! The men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yes, on land it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word, and after all, dear, what is idle prattle for? So, the, you actually touched on a point that I wanted to ask later, but... Uh, now that we're on this, so women were allowed to be teachers. Were they allowed to be principals? Not. So to be a teacher, to be a principal, when the common sort of school system arrived in in Canada, um, initially you could be a teacher with only completing your uh, your highest grade required. You didn't need to go to teachers' college. When um, Edgar Ryerson was one of the, the intellectuals and politicians who began to develop a, a proper common school system that would be free and open to, to everyone, uh, schooling became very widespread and there was a huge need for teachers. And so they, a lot of the early teachers who needed now to be paid for the province were young women because they could afford to pay them less money than the men. And the men tended to teach older children um, be involved in the private high schools and as well we're taking the leadership roles such as principals. The first woman to become a principal was Emily Stowe who was uh, had attended the first teachers college in Ontario which was known as normal school. They wanted to make children normal so they went to normal school to train and because of her high marks at normal school she was appointed as the first um, female principal in, I think it was 1856 or 57, and she was teaching in a high school, or excuse me, she was a principal of a school in Brantford. She only kept the position for a few years because then she married, and once you married, you had to leave your work. But Emily Stowe later became uh, the first female physician in Canada. Yes, absolutely. That's an interesting story if you wanted to get into that now. Yeah, for sure. So she, she left teaching and she was living with her husband, John, and he was a carriage maker and they were living in a, just outside Brantford in a community called Mount Pleasant. She had children and she seemed to be sort of moving into a more domestic responsibility, which was what women were 
the expectations for women were to become wives and mothers. That would be their highest achievements and standards. That, that's what they are seen to be best at. And that seemed to be the path that she was on, even though she had had a, a, a university education at Teachers College. But she had always been interested in pursuing medical school and had tried to get into university to do that prior to going to normal school, but no university at the time beyond Teachers College were admitting women. So I kind of feel like she put her dreams on hold and kept asking for reform to education to allow women into um, different types of higher education. Then her husband got sick, which we, with a disease, probably tuberculosis. And she was, um, he wasn't able to work and he had to go to a sanitarium or a sanatorium to uh, try to recover. So she was left sort of as a single mom at that point. And so she actually got permission to return to teaching for a while to earn some money to support her family while her husband was recuperating. And then in the middle of all this, she decides to go to the United States to become a physician because in the United States, they did have a handful of colleges in the East that were accepting women as uh, medical students and there was nowhere in Canada at the time. So she leaves her family while her husband is sick. Her sister moves in to take care of her children and she trains for two years in the United States to become a physician. And I, I just imagine what the neighbors thought at this very radical decision I believe she had family support because her sister was helping out and one of her nieces later trained as a doctor. Emily's own uh, daughter, Augusta Stowe, became a doctor. And when she finished her degree and she moved to Toronto to start her first practice, her husband was doing better and he eventually retrained as a dentist and opened his practice with her in their home. So I, I, I think she took it as an opportunity as this is maybe the only time I can try to do this while I'm still relatively young. I maybe want to learn medicine also to help my, my husband's health. Her mother has a lot of healing expertise. And so I think she just, she just went for it. And it must've been, um, I imagine there was many raised eyebrows in her community for, le for her leaving her family during a time of crisis. It was a very brave thing to do. Uh, yeah, like you were saying, leaving the children at home, uh, having your sister come in, and then going to another country and learning medical, having medical training uh, is just the medical program is so intense. Uh, and I, it's hard to imagine what kind of pressure she had on her with her husband's being sick as well. And most people, why the medical schools were barred to women in Canada and in many places in the United States and elsewhere in the world is people didn't believe women have the capacity to study medicine that there, there was one Harvard professor of medicine who was saying like women had puny bodies and brains and if they were menstruating, they would be too faint and could they stand at an operating table? No. So they, he, they were concerned both about women's physicality as well as their intellect to, to uh, take on such a rigorous study. The step she made was definitely such a breakthrough. Today we have almost more women than men in the medical training programs. And, oh, and with uh, the veterinary uh, side of it, which is also a medical degree, uh, it's more than 80% women in Canada uh, who, are, <laughs> who are vets. Uh, so she and uh, also uh, Gracie, Gracie Ritchie, um, who, was in the, who was in Quebec, the first uh, female physician in Quebec, uh, who, they kind of became physicians in relatively the same time. That's right. Emily Stowe was the first, and then there was a few 
she was training at the same time as Jenny Kid Trout, who was another Canadian woman. They're often both identified as the first women in Canada. And then Queen's University opened up a small class of women as like an experiment. And Grace Ritchie England was in that first class and she had broken down barriers in Quebec like Emily Stowe, fighting to get into university first and then to go on to medical school. She studied at Bishop's University in Quebec. And um, she at the time though was a single woman, like a young woman in her twenties who had gone a more traditional path and then married one of her instructors and um, had one daughter. And then like Emily Stowe practiced in an urban center, um, mainly focusing on, on the care of women and children and doing a little bit of teaching on the side. And uh, usually gynecology, pediatrics were where women were encouraged to um, specialize in. It was their relatively new fields at the time, and they thought it would be best for a women to take care of their own sex. And both Grace Ritchie England and Emily Stowe wanted to help women because they felt often maybe some other health concerns were neglected by male physicians who felt uncomfortable with the female body. Yes, uh, that's that's another question that I wanted to ask you, uh, Professor, which is, do you think that many women were not able to receive the medical help that they needed because of this very same reason that either they felt uncomfortable with males uh, checking them over or the male doctors did not feel comfortable or may have even uh, not minded, but they also didn't have the, the respect that was needed uh, to take care of the of females and to not wave off their issues. What I think is similar to sometimes today in the past, often the male body was seen as the normal body. And so when they're conducting tests or considering symptoms, often physicians are studying what is common to what a man might experience. And so I know, for example, until more recently, it was hard to identify what how a woman might experience, let's say, um, a stroke or a heart attack because their body might actually present the symptoms differently. I know cases, <coughs> excuse me, um, today where people might dismiss a symptom if they're not considered the normal symptoms to have and if women's bodies exhibit things differently. In the past, this was similar. The women's, particularly things that only happen to women, such as pu women's version of puberty, menstruation, childbirth, um, as well as menopause were considered abnormalities of the body because they were not presenting in men's. And there was a lot of mystery about that. And rather than see these as normal functions that women go through, they were seen as these abnormalities that needed to be treated. And so women who, things that we may be much more understand about women's health today were dismissed as, as wrong or, or problematic needing medicalization. And they also really dismissed both men and women's mental health issues in the past. There was little, very little compassion for people who were experiencing um, mental health disorders. But women tended to be treat it a bit more harshly in that concern because it wasn't only things that we might now identify as someone who might have had um, epilepsy or schizophrenia or depression or anxiety. Women who just were exhibiting unusual behavior could be admitted to an asylum by their father or husband or brother or for let's say excessive novel reading was one sort of um, looking at patients records from a Toronto asylum or having strong views or so there were, women didn't really have enough autonomy through the law to protect themselves from those things. 
either their fathers or their husbands could would um, have them admit it if they felt their be their emotional or their mental behavior was abnormal. I I have to uh, ask you about you, you said that there were medical records that say almost uh, also um, excessive novel reading. Yes, there. This is one particular case. Um, I believe it. It is in um, a book called Nature of Our Bodies by Wendy Mitchinson, in which she's looking at asylum records for a Toronto asylum. And this was one case of a young woman patient who exhibited other issues that seemed similar to what might be bipolarism today, for example. And he was concerned about her hygiene and her um, her behavior. But in this case, he also highlighted the fact that she would stay up late at night reading, and he thought that was really problematic. So things that, again, why the ideas that were getting in her brain, he felt were inappropriate, maybe. Do we know um, of many more women being uh, admitted to uh, mental health facilities than men? Um, that's a great question. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact figures yeah. because there is many men also who are in these asylums that were usually, for the most part, quite awful conditions and with not a lot of understanding of, of how brains or yeah. um, handle those things. So it was awful for both men and women in these situations, but men had more legal power to circumvent if they had enough money and enough education and literacy to, and the doctors, I think, might be more willing to listen to them and see them as more rational people to begin with. Mm. Well, that's a really good point. So going back to what you're just saying about limitations, uh, let's talk a bit more about that. The amount of limitations that women had, were they allowed to have a bank account? Were they allowed to manage their own finances? So that evolves in throughout history. But if you were thinking like around the time of that first election where those seven women voted, um, no, you, you, if you were, they said, if you were a single woman living on your own as an, uh, as an adult, you were able to sort of negotiate your own affairs to, to a certain extent. But if you were a, a girl or you were a married woman and most marriage was the destiny of most women at, at the time, your husband was in complete control of your economic situation. And um, in fact, it wasn't until the 1960s in Canada that a woman could open a bank account without having her husband sign off that he was aware. So even like my mom in 1960s, Quebec, she needed her husband's approval to open a bank account. So uh, she could have one in her name and she could have a credit card in her name that he needed to sign off. And this was done both with the assumption that he would be responsible for problems if and that he was probably the higher earner in the family. And so it's sort of like the co-signing of a loan in, in some ways, but it also there was, meant there was no privacy. So if a woman was saving money, maybe to get away from a, a, a problematic relationship, that she was not able to do that if he had access to her funds um, or be aware of, of all her um, bank accounts. You gotta know how to treat me like a lady.
You're listening to Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host, Mai Cooper, and with me was Professor Tara Brookfield, the author of Our Voices Must Be Heard, a book on the history of the fight for women's rights in Canada, and the author of a book about children's rights and the activist women who took care of them in the World Wars and the Cold War on the Canadian side, called Cold War Comforts, Canadian Women, Child Safety, and Global Insecurity. Professor Brookfield is the associate professor in both the Faculty of History and the Faculty of Children and Youth at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. You've been listening to part one of a new four-part series on women's rights in Canada through Zoom with Changemakers. Please write to me any comments or feedback to changemakerswithoutborders at gmail.com. That's changemakerswithoutborders at gmail.com. I'd be happy to hear from you. Again, this is Mike Cooper, your producer and host. Thanks for lending your ears.